Hi, I'm Jan Orman. I'm a GP and host of Black Dog Institute's Being Well podcast. The Being Well podcast is a series of engaging stories from real people who've led interesting lives and experienced mental health difficulties. They have not allowed their mental health difficulties to define them, but have grown and flourished. Every now and again, we'll mention online resources. If you'd like to find out more about those resources, please head to the eMental Health in Practice page of the Black Dog Institute website. There are issues discussed in these podcasts that some people might find distressing. If you do experience distress, please contact your usual support person or lifeline on 131114. Welcome to another episode of the Black Dog Institute's Being Well podcast. On this episode of Being Well, we are joined by the usual host of the podcast, Jan Orman, who will be stepping behind the microphone as a guest to discuss her experiences with mental health, both personally and professionally, her expertise in e-mental health, as well as her role in helping GPs with their own mental health. Hi, I'm Jan Orman. I'm the host of the Being Well podcast. I'm also a general practitioner and I am the GP services consultant for Black Dog Institute. I write and deliver all the educational programs for the federal government's e-mental health in practice project, a project designed to help people working in primary care learn about online resources to increase their efficiency and effectiveness around mental health care. I have to confess that my interest in mental health came from a number of different um, different situations that I was in. I spent 10 years in general, general practice in metropolitan Sydney feeling completely inadequate, just not skilled enough for the task. I was working in North Sydney, which is basically a CBD sort of area in Sydney, and most of the people that I saw wanted some support with various mental health issues. Now, we're not talking here about psychosis or bipolar disorder, although there was a little bit of that. We're talking about stress. I mean, it's the 80s, North Sydney's a big, stressful advertising environment. There was a lot of pressure on people in the workplace, stress, anxiety, depression, and I just didn't know what to do with these people, but I knew I should know what to do. That's one issue. The other thing that got me interested was that I personally have experienced a number of episodes of depression. And even then, back 10 years post-graduation, I was fairly familiar with depression as um, a, a problem. And I both wanted to know how to help other people and how to help myself. So I think we're talking now about 14, 15 years post-graduation. I've 
decided to do a master's and at that stage, unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. There was a terrific master's at the University of New South Wales called the Masters of Psychological Medicine that was designed for general practitioners and integrated the master's study into their work as GPs. So I was able to learn about cognitive behavioural therapy in that context and um, I actually did manage to use it to help both my patients and to some extent myself with the mental health issues that we had. It's worth noting that I did do my Masters of Psychological Medicine in order to help myself. And the reason I had to do that was that my personal experience with trying to talk to people about my psychological state, my mental health, was not good. Back in first year university when I was 18, I remember going to see a general practitioner about something trivial probably, um, perhaps a bad cold or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the reason was. And on arrival at the surgery, sat down in his chair and burst into tears. And that general practitioner made no attempt to ask me why I was crying, assumed that the problem was that um, uh, I was sick, uh, gave me a prescription which in retrospect he probably shouldn't have given me because fashions have changed in terms of what you prescribe antibiotics for and I was out the door. Had he bothered to ask any questions, he'd have discovered that now this was the first few months of my university career, uh, straight after the HSC, he'd have discovered that in June of the HSC year my mother had died and my father was so unwell that he needed to be admitted to a nursing home straight after my mother died. I completed my HSC year boarding with the lady next door and then um, came to Sydney on my own to go to university from the country. Now, those are all fairly stressful experiences and it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that university was very a very difficult transition for me under those circumstances. I didn't have a lot in the form of family support. I do have some sisters, but they were scattered over the countryside with young children of their own. And so, and what's more, there's always a personality issue that goes on here. I was absolutely determined to be completely independent and not, not need help from anyone. So you can see that that experience is, uh, has been a sentinel experience for me in terms of being discouraged from seeking help for issues around my psychological state. And also really important to me in what I've done with my career. I mean, I spent that 10 years in regular general practice before I found mental health. And my mental health agenda is to try and help people before they get too sick. Now, that's not going to work for people with, with what we call access one conditions, you know, for, for people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder necessarily. But it is going to help with people who plummet as far as their mental health is concerned in response to the various life stressors. So you can see why I think it's really important for GPs to be in there at the, the front line of mental health care because they're the ones who see the people before they do plummet into a serious mental health problem. What we need to do is do something about building resilience in vulnerable people and about 
treating people, giving them support and helping them look after themselves before they get too sick, while they're still in that stressed stage and before they they move into severe anxiety and depression. A lot of people who've got the mental health training think that there is no way GPs can have a role, a role of any importance, because they simply aren't adequately trained. And that philosophy extends right up into the higher echelons of the bureaucracy and of people who are, are advising the bureaucracy about what general practitioners can and can't do. Uh, The other side of the coin, of course, is that GPs are the first point of call for most people, whether their problems are physical or psychological. And in order to make good diagnoses and to, to help people in some way, GPs need to have some skills. So, And as the first point of call, they if they don't have the skills and the understanding and the insight into mental health, they can actually discourage people from seeking further care in mental health. It's difficult to know whether GPs think in general whether mental health is part of their job or not. To say most GPs think it's not part of their job, I think would be unfair to general practitioners. I think most GPs actually think it's part of their job, but don't know how to fit it in. Most of the online treatment programs are cognitive behavioural therapy based. The ones that, that are part of the MPRAC project are all evidence based. They're not just based on cognitive behavioural therapy, which is evidence-based, they themselves have some evidence to support their use. And they come in various forms. There are a lot of programs, but they are a different shape and target different audiences and present themselves in different ways. So it's actually good for practitioners to know about, say, the MindSpot program that's especially for people 60 years and older if they're dealing with an older person, you know. Or it's also good for for them to know that um, the This Way Up programs, for example, are all cartoon-based and some people will like cartoons and some people won't like cartoons, you see. So so that, that's the sort of level of knowledge that practitioners recommending these programs need to know about. So what I've said so far is that e-mental health is websites for psychoeducation, fancy word that means finding some information about, about mental health problems, apps for mostly for symptom management and also some of them for information, and cognitive behavioural therapy-based programs that are available online in modular form for people to work through and learn some skills to help manage their mental health. So that just about sums up what e-mental health is about. One of the things I do when I'm talking to patients is ask them if what they've done online already. Ask them if they're using any apps to help them with their symptoms or whether they've they've discovered any online programs already. That's a good starting point because lots of the time people will have already had a look around. They'll have Googled depression, heaven forbid, (laughs) or depression treatment. And sometimes they actually come in and ask me what I think 
of the things they've found on the internet. Now, that's a good starting point. But if I ask them what they've done already, it opens up a conversation. If they've never heard of such a thing, then that allows me to introduce them to the idea that maybe while they're waiting to get into the psychologist or or um, because they can't get to the psychologist, they'd like to do something online to give them some insight into what's going on for them and perhaps learn some skills about how they can manage things. And after we've had a conversation like that, I'll show them the Head to Health website. Um, I'll recommend something specifically that I think they would enjoy, but suggest to them that they might go to the Head to Health site and look for something else if they don't like the one that I've recommended. And I will very emphatically make an appointment for them to come back and see me to talk about it. So usually within two weeks, I want them to come back and talk to me about something specific related to the program that I've recommended. If, for example, I recommend My Compass, My Compass is very convenient because the modules are separate from each other. You don't have to do it in a linear fashion. So I might say to them, how about going and having a look at the My Compass um, Managing Sleep module because that's really a big issue for you at the moment. And what I find is they'll, once registered for that, they'll go and have a look at the Insomnia module and they'll look around at the other modules too and maybe find something else that they might need to do. E-mental health tools have a particular advantage in that they can be accessed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So for a whole lot of people, one of the barriers to uh, face-to-face care is time, not being able to get time away from the kids, away from work when the psychologist's doors are open. That's the first advantage of e-mental health programs. The second advantage is around stigma. There are a lot of people who wouldn't be seen passing through the front door of a psychologist or a psychiatrist's office, particularly in country towns, because I'm sorry to say, despite everything that we're doing around mental health, that stigma still exists. If someone sees you going through that door, they know you're going to the psychologist and that you must have a mental health problem. This doesn't apply if you can learn some cognitive behavioural skills in the privacy of your own home on your own computer. So there are two marked advantages of um, e-therapy over face-to-face therapy. People are sometimes a bit scared about referring to e-mental health programs. What they're mostly afraid of is that patients will deteriorate without people catching on to the fact that they're deteriorating because they won't come back for follow-up. Now, I think as general practitioners, we can actually do something about that. We can actively follow them up after we've recommended an e-mental health program. There are a variety of other concerns that people have, not least of which is confidentiality. Um, Some of the programs require that patients put personal information into the programs. And I think that... uh, It's mostly reassuring the situation as regards confidentiality. And as I said, 
before. You can register for these programs under an assumed name. You, if your patients are concerned about confidentiality or you as a practitioner are concerned about confidentiality, don't worry. There is, there's only one program that requires you to use something resembling your own name and that's the program MindSpot that contacts you after each lesson. Now, it's not your own name they need. They need a contact detail, whether it's your telephone number or, or your email address. So, so otherwise, confidentiality is not really an issue with these programs. When I'm talking to GPs and allied health professionals about using e-mental health tools, I encourage them to go and look at one thing have a close look at one of the programs. Often my compass, because of the modularity of my compass, the fact that they don't have to go through the whole program to get a sense of it. Um, and once they're familiar with it, to start recommending it. So there's plenty of time to get to know what all the other programs are. But if you get to know one really well and start recommending it, and seeing what the response of your patient group is, then you can modify your recommendations appropriately. When you recommend an e-mental health program, it's important to, I think, show it to the person that you're recommending it to on your screen or even get it up on their screen, on their phone perhaps or, or whatever mobile device they're carrying so that they are familiar with it before they leave the room. And I often say to GPs, hey, get your practice nurse to, to sit with them while they register the, for the program if your practice nurse has got time because that registration progress, process can sometimes be a barrier to getting involved in the program and getting rid of that barrier is a very positive thing. I would recommend that if you as a GP or a psychologist or an allied health professional are recommending apps to your patients that you don't look at them sight unseen. You would not, um, don't, sorry, don't recommend them sight unseen. You would not recommend that somebody read a book unless you'd read it yourself. Um, that can get you into real hot water if you don't know what the content is about. few anecdotes and bits of research to support the idea that medical students looking at e-mental health programs um, would be useful to them. I believe that that Mood Gym was rolled out to a group of medical students in the States in one research project that I'm sorry I can't give you the reference for, but um, what happened was that one cohort did Mood Gym and another cohort did not do Mood Gym. And whilst they didn't do better in their exams, the group that had done Mood Gym, they were calmer in their exams and they managed the lead up to their exams a whole lot more, um, a whole lot better. A big issue in the medical profession is the mental health of doctors themselves. And I'm I'm very engaged with the idea that we need to help medical students right from the beginning of their careers understand that they need to look after themselves. 
It's a difficult job. It's particularly difficult in the early stages of your career when you're trying to establish yourself, you're trying to know everything that there is to know, you're trying to impress your superiors, you're trying to manage a system in which, dare I say, it, a degree of bullying and is traditional, so they, they tell me. Um, I think it's a difficult time from – it's not just the under, well, undergraduate, the studying years. It's the 10 years after that as well and often the entire career if you happen to choose a specialty area that is, is very stressful. Uh, medicine generally is stressful. And, you know, a lot of the people who do medicine aren't necessarily equipped to manage the degree of stress that occurs in their professional lives. I'm all in favour of, of talking about mental health and resilience building to very small children. I'm particularly in favour of talking about it with early medical students, though. I think that, that the sooner you start looking after yourself in ways that build your resilience, the better, and what's more, the better doctor you will be. There are two arms to improving doctors' mental health. One of them is the one that everybody's talking about at the moment and that's the workplace, to make the workplace, whether it be the hospital system or, or private practice, more human. At the moment, there is so much bureaucracy, so much red tape, so much harassment, um, so much looking over your shoulder to make sure that, that no one's behind you, um, that... that it's not a place that's conducive to good mental health. Um, but the other arm that needs something done about it, and this is something that, that doctors can do for themselves, is that they need to do the things themselves that improve their resilience. So they need to learn some cognitive behavioural skills, perhaps from an e-mental health program, that, that will improve their resi resilience, some relaxation skills, some learning to say no to things, some, some um, setting boundaries around how many hours they work in a row and whether that or not they have their holidays, uh, those kinds of issues. And also they need to remember that they weren't born with a stethoscope around their necks, that there are other things in life than medicine and that's where all those things I do around creative doctors is concerned come in. But you know, it's not just creativity, it's sport, it's um, altruistic endeavours that don't involve medicine, you know, serving in the soup kitchen once a fortnight, those sorts of things. There are all sorts of things that are important to do to improve your mental health that are often forgotten when you're completely drowning in medicine. Of course, this advice doesn't just apply to doctors. It applies to everyone in the health system. Everyone is has been drawn to health because they want to do something for the world, because they care about people, and those sorts of people tend to be the people that can be put upon, if you like, that too much can be asked of, that will look after other people rather than look after themselves. So anyone in the health system, I think, needs to learn some personal resilience skills. Creative Doctors is something that I got involved in because of my interest in 
my own mental health and also because of my interest in doctors' mental health. There is evidence that one of the things that goes wrong for doctors is that around retirement they fall apart because for all their lives they've had nothing in their, their lives except medicine. And if they have to give up medicine, they have problems with their identity, amongst other things. Now, there's something really not, not healthy about a whole life that's focused on one thing, I think, anyway. Maybe it makes it's good for the community to have doctors who aren't interested in anything else except medicine, but it's probably not good for the individual. I got involved in creative doctors after... Um, it was first established. I'm not, I didn't get in on the ground floor, but I've been part of the administrative, if you like, the management committee of creative doctors for um, six years maybe. Uh, it's a group of three general practitioners with an interest in mental health sponsored by a woman called Judith Babbage who runs a locums agency and is obviously interested for that reason in the health of, of doctors. Um, and what we do is we try and encourage doctors to remember who they really are, who they were before they did medicine, what the other side of their brain used to do and was good at. There's a lot of talent there in medicine. Those people that got um, high UAIs or whatever it used to be called when we did it, 99 or more, top 2% of the state, um, they're actually good at other things, you know. Some of them can play the violin. Some of them can... can draw like you wouldn't believe. Some of them are great performers. There are lot, There's lots of talent out there. So Creative Doctors helps people, doctors, network with each other around the creative interests that they have and encourages them to continue with those creative interests and hopefully reaches younger doctors to encourage them to, to continue with those creative interests so that generally they flourish. Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you've found distressing, don't forget to contact your usual support person or you can call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.